When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. selling postcards of the hanging. They're painting the passports brown. The beauty parlor is filled with sailors. The circus is in town. Here comes the blind commissioner. They've got him in a trance. One hand is tied to the tightrope walker. The other is in his pants. And the riot squad, they're restless. They need somewhere to go. As Lady and I look out tonight from Desolation Row. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about one of, you know, the great Bob Dylan epics of all time, 1965's Desolation Row, is fellow Bobcat, Scott Pearson. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. Now, I, I want to give everybody a little bit of context. In the back of my head... Uh, when I was deciding what shows you know to start lining up for 2020, I was like, you know what? It'd be kind of fun to just do like a big one for the first show of 2020. And I didn't tell anybody that, though. I just had it in the back of my head because, again, I let the guests pick the songs. So I was just like, well, let me just see what happens. Maybe I can arrange it in a way that will really hit the ground running. And so then a couple, of, I don't know, a month or two ago, you and I started talking and you said you wanted to do the show and I said sure so I said well name a song and you <laughs> you you said Desolation Row as your first and only pick to me and I thought I like that moxie I like that you were just like I'm swinging for the fences I'm gonna go for a song that a bunch of other guests have said you know what I'd love to talk about it but I'm too scared to so I really appreciate that and it lined up perfectly that you were just like Let's just go for the big one. So, okay, we're here to talk about Desolation Road. But before we <laughs> before we go down this very scary road, uh, since you're new to the show, Scott, I want to ask you, like, how did you become a fan of the of the music? Well, back in the late 70s into the early 80s, when I was in high school, that's when I first started really paying attention to music. And I didn't have any siblings, I didn't, and my parents listened to country western music, so I I didn't have anyone for a long time really introducing me to music. and But in high school, I had a couple overlapping groups of friends. One group was introducing me to stuff like Blondie and Devo and the B-52s. And then the other group was introducing me to The Doors, Led Zeppelin, and Bob Dylan. All right. And so one of the guys that was in that group that introduced me to Bob Dylan. Uh, we ended up going to college together in the early 80s, and so I continued listening primarily to his Dylan LPs. And so I think the ones that he had were Bring It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde. <laughs> and so for the first few years that I was getting acquainted with Dylan, that's really all I listened to. And um, that's more than enough in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but then I remember when Infidels came out, when I first heard that Joker Man really grabbed me. Um, and I, you know, I was the hook was beginning to set <laughs> deeper. <laughs> and 
so when Biograph came out in 85, I bought that. And then the next year is when I saw Bob in concert for the first time. Oh, okay. Now you're getting it deeper. Yeah. Getting it deeper now. And that was on the big uh, Dylan and the Dead and Tom Petty tour. And then that was really like, wow, okay, I am all in. You know, after that, Mm -hmm. that's when I started buying more stuff of his on my own and starting to learn a lot more about everything that he was was doing. Uh, I should make a... (laughs) <laughs> I should tell a little bit of the story about the uh, Dylan and the Dead concert that I saw. It was at the um, at, at the then home of the Minnesota Vikings, the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome. <laughs> and, I like those two things put together. Yeah. The Metrodome, the Hubert H. Hunt Humphrey yeah. Metrodome. <laughs> and it was, I mean, you can find this online. It is widely known and disparaged as the worst sounding concert ever because you know the metrodome it's this football stadium it had this sort of inflated domed ceiling and the sound just bounced all around and it was just like a muddy washed out mess it's like people hated the show and but here's the thing i think it was maybe even just the day before the show at the time i lived in duluth and uh, I had purchased nosebleed tickets and uh, got a call from a friend who lived in the cities. And they said, uh, we've got an extra fourth row ticket. Do you want it? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> so I saw Dylan and the Dead and Tom Petty from the fourth row. And in the fourth row, the sound was amazing. But as you went further back and further up, it just turned into garbage. But so it was an amazing show for me. And, you know, I went back to see him the next time he came to Minnesota a few years later in 1989, which actually turned out to be the worst Dylan show I've ever seen. Bob was not feeling it that night. Ah, okay. You know, it was All one right. of those nights where he never said a word. He didn't even introduce the band. He just came out. He rolled quickly through a set and left the stage. I don't even remember <laughs> if there was an encore. I don't know what was going on with him, but it was really bad. But then I just kept going back to Bob every time he came to Minnesota. And, you know, flash forward to now, I've seen him 25 times <laughs> over the years. And I've seen him, you know, across the spectrum, amazing transformative performances, mediocre shows, terrible shows, uh, you know, in in the aggregate, mostly all thumbs up shows. It's really only that one that that stands out as being a, a really not a good show. It's uh, it's amazing how he's kind of, uh, in a way, conditioned his fans to we just accept that now. That sometimes you go see him in concert and you're like, that wasn't very good. And you're just like, all right, I'll see you next year, Bob. Like, you don't yeah. even you don't even pause for a moment. A lot of time, I mean, I, there's, I don't really bother to go see other concerts anymore. But it's like if I saw somebody for the first time and it was a bad show, I'd be like, well, I'm never going back to that. I'm done. I'm done with them. They they had their shot. But with Bob, it's like, yeah, all right, fine. See you next year. He just wasn't, as you said, he wasn't feeling it today. We're very, <laughs> very yeah. accepting well, recently, of his idiosyncrasies. 
he was just back to Minnesota a couple months ago, and I had purchased a couple of tickets. My daughter and I were going to go. Um, I should say that uh, my daughter attended her first Bob Dylan concert when my wife was pregnant with her. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and and she's seen Bob a few times over the years, uh, and so she's a Bob Dylan fan as well. But we were going to go to the show, but then we had a family emergency. We couldn't make it to the show, and so I didn't want the tickets to go to waste. And so there was a, a young uh, friend of ours um, that... I've really only known for a year or two, but I know, knew that he was a big Bob Dylan fan. And so I asked him, hey, you know, I've got these spare tickets. Could you use them? And he said, oh, yes. And he was very excited. Well, then I found out that as big a Bob Dylan fan as he is, he had never seen Bob in concert. Because, well, you know, tickets are expensive. And he just and he, he said to me, it's like, I, I didn't know if I was ever going to see Bob in my lifetime, basically, you know. And so at that point, it was like, wow, this is great. I'm I'm, I'm so happy that I'm facilitating your first show. It kind of kind of takes the edge off of me missing the show that I get to do this for a, a young fan that hasn't seen him before. But then I said to him, I hope you see a good Bob, a happy Bob. <laughs> And not cranky Bob. <laughs> and then, so the day after the show, I immediately went online to find reviews. And across the board, the reviews were saying, best show in years in Minnesota. Ah, okay. And so I was so happy that his first concert turned out to be a, a fine performance. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. You could introduce him to something and have him be like, oh, wow, that was fantastic. That's 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 great. I mean, Biograph is really a very good sampler, I'd say, if you're just getting into him and you want to expand your horizons as to sort of take it all in. That's that's really – and the, the timing of that was perfect, that it was out right at the point where you were sort of ready for that. Yeah. You know, you had gotten the albums and you were ready to kind of go further, and then boom, here's this – five disc set of rarities and obscure stuff so that's that's uh that's perfect i i have to ask you since you are from his neck of the woods have you ever been tempted to drive over to hibbing and check out the the you know the house or whatever i mean i'm sure i i, I imagine people go by that all the time and they know where it is at this point yeah i um it's crossed my mind but i've i've never made that pilgrimage um it is interesting to be from his home country uh weird piece of trivia uh when bob's mother passed away i reading the obituary learned <laughs> that she lived in my neighborhood oh wow and we had moved into the neighborhood just a few years earlier but so over the course of that three years i'm sure at least once or twice bob <laughs> was visiting <laughs> Just, you know, within a mile or two of me. And I, I was just thinking, as super fan as I am, I should have felt like, you know, a disturbance in the force. <laughs> Bob's, Bob's here. I should just wander wow. around yelling his name until I find him. But <laughs> uh, That guy with the hoodie pedaling on a bike. That's probably Bob. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I lived, in, I lived in Duluth for many years. His, you know, his birth town. Um, and... You know, he's still got uh, 
uh, land out here. He's got some sort of farmstead someplace, and you know. But I've I've never I've never knowingly uh, bumped into him. But it's who knows? Maybe I've walked past him, and he was wearing hoodie and sunglasses, and I didn't see him. I think that's a, a more than a distinct possibility. That's really cool. That's amazing. Well, I mean, it said it's uh, that that. It's, you know, I'm always of of two minds about that because it's the same time I try and separate the music from the man, you know, I mean, he's a guy and I want to kind of respect that. And it's the music that I love. I don't need to be obsessive with the man. At the same time, I, boy, that would be all when I, when I, you know, when I first started talking, you mentioned where you were from. I thought, oh man, he's right. in. that would be really hard for me to turn down to not just take an afternoon and drive over there just to be like, that's the house. (laughs) There it is. That's kind of amazing. Well, when we came down to the, um, a couple times when I when I used to live up north in Duluth, and I would come down to the cities to Bob Dylan, well, well, of course you have to spend at least part of the trip driving down Highway 61. Mm. You know, so <laughs> it is a, it, and and really there should be a law that Bob always performs Highway 61 revisited when he performs in Minnesota because the, the <laughs> crowd goes you know, extra insane because obviously everyone loves that song. But when you, right, right. when you're able to actually drive on highway 61 now and then when you hear Bob sing it, yeah, something special. <laughs> I saw a bunch of bleachers out there. It's really true. Yeah. 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 So, uh, that, that's, uh, that's, that's amazing. So, well, very cool. Uh, like I said, you mentioned highway 61. Of course, that's the album that we're here to talk about. I mean, this is desolation row. This is one of, <laughs> You know, the great masterpieces of, of the man's career. I don't think there's any even really much of an argument about that. I, I was doing research for this episode and I saw that, you know, of, of any of the great you know lists of any like American Songwriter magazine or Rolling Stone magazine did, you know, the 500 greatest songs of all time. Desolation Row was always there. It's always in the, the, the top 50 percentile because this is just such an amazing piece of work. And it, it's uh, 11 minutes and 21 seconds, I think to the, it was that, to his point, the longest song he had recorded, of course, <laughs> until uh, Sad Out of the Lady of the Lowlands the very next year. It's sort of funny when you think about how he felt the need to give Sad Out of the Lady of the Lowlands its own side uh, for Blonde on Blonde, even though it's barely longer than <laughs> Desolation Row. And yet Desolation Row is tucked on side two, along with uh, three other already, you know, pretty pretty epic songs. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, before we get into the song specifically, like, wh- why this one? I mean, why did you want to go for this one? Well, it's it's strange, um, given that, as I mentioned already, uh, Highway 61 Revisited was one of the LPs that I listened to very, very much uh, in, in those formative years of my becoming a fan. And yet, uh, the performance on that album did not stick in my mind. And so it wasn't until 95 when I tuned in to watch Bob on MTV Unplugged. Oh, yeah. Okay. And he did Desolation Row, and it just blew my mind. I was like, what is this song? This is just an astonishing song. I've never heard this before. Is it a new song? And then, of course, I looked it up, and it's like, well, no, it's not a new song. It was on one of the (laughs) seminal albums. But for some (laughs) reason, um, that slower version just never grabbed me and that uh the unplugged version is still my favorite performance of of the uh of the song really and and then um 
yeah, I just I just loved it and listened to it over and over and over. And then I was able to see him. I, I did see him perform it once. Um, I, I looked it up on my list of Dylan concerts five years after seeing it on Unplugged and seven concerts later because <laughs> there was hmm. there was a period back in the 90s when he would be coming to Minnesota about three times every two years. You know, sometimes you'd see him twice in the same calendar year. Wouldn't be, you'd be like at the end of one tour and the start of the next one. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so I actually, in five years, I'd seen him seven times, but that on that seventh concert, I, I saw him do an acoustic version of Desolation Row. And I don't have any specific memory of the performance other than just, you know, as soon as I realized what he was doing, I was just, you know, finally. But um, so it's, um, when we get into talking about the song, we'll find out how hard it is to articulate any real sense of what this song is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But for some yeah. reason, it just uh, grabbed me. So when I learned about your podcast and was trying to think about some songs to do, I was looking through the show. A couple other songs actually did pop into my head first. Um, one of the songs that came to me was Shelter from the Storm, uh, a personal favorite of mine. And when I got married, uh, we had a friend's band play at our reception, and they learned uh, Shelter from the Storm to play for us uh, because they knew that I was such a raving fan. Uh, so that was an important song to me. But that had already been done, and... I might have looked at one or two other songs and they'd already been done. And, and then, then I realized, well, the podcast has been going for long enough. You're going to have to do a deeper cut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of the, 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 the lower hanging fruit has been, uh, has been covered. So, you know, and as soon as I said, okay, let's go, you know, like one step further out from some of those songs that everyone knows all the lyrics to, well, then the, the first, the first thing that came to my mind after that was Desolation Row. So All right. that's why I just had that one suggestion for you when I got back to you. All right, I said I admire the chutzpah. Uh, I mean, to the, the history of the song, I think probably most people know, is that he recorded it a couple different times, a couple different versions. There's a, there's, you can hear one of the alternate takes on uh, the No Direction Home bootleg series, and uh, I guess he was never quite satisfied with it. And then on... August uh, 4th, uh, which was an overdub session for Highway 61. At that point, the album was mostly finished. Uh, Bob John, his producer, Bob Johnson, brought in Nashville-based guitarist Charlie McCoy, and he happened to be in New York, and he went in there and played with Bob and Russ Savakas on bass, and then they banged out this version, which is the version that ended up appearing on the album. And, I mean... After I, I talked about this on the Just Like Tom Thumbs Blues uh, episode where, you know, Highway 61 is a concept album in a very loose sense. When mm -hmm. it, we, I think when we hear concept albums, we think of like Yes or something like these sort of, yeah. you know, grand prog rock things. And that's not what Bob is doing. But Highway 61 certainly has some sort of um, kind of a journey going on. And I mean, in, in Just Like Tom Thumbs Blues... Uh, he mentions there's a there's a reference to housing project hill 
which is from Desolation Angel Desolation Angels by Jack Kerouac. And then here we go in the very next song, we've got Desolation Row, uh, which seems to be, you know, like a lot of the song, a combination of a, of a million different things mm-hmm. that were swimming around in Bob's head at the time. You've got potentially Cannery Row and Desolation Angels. And now here, I mean, so by the time uh, we get to the end of Just, Just Like Tom Thumbs, Tom Thumbs Blues, the characters have almost literally fallen out of America at that point. They are now down in Juarez. They're, they've lost, you know, they've, they've taken Highway 61 as far as it can go uh, metaphorically, and they have now dropped out of the, the country entirely. But for Desolation Row, we're now back somewhere, and presumably maybe we're back in New York. We're not exactly sure. And it's we are all of a sudden uh, sonically thrown into a completely different world because, of course, the eight songs leading up to this are hard driving rock and then boom all of a sudden we've got this acoustic thing going on with this flamenco guitar going on in the background <laughs> and it doesn't sound like anything else on the record yep uh and all of a sudden you know it's like you know and i i kind of remember the first time i heard this and and i wasn't prepared for it and i you know i'm like okay i'm not really sure what's going on here and then the damn thing just keeps going <laughs> You know, and you're like, yeah. oh my god, how far? You know, and you really are. It's it's like a nightmare. It's like a fever dream that just you can't get out of because it just keeps going and going. And I don't think I'm going to try and uh, quote all the lyrics here in this episode because this song is so long. Ten verses, but, um, but yeah, there's ten verses. But but I will do a couple here. The second verse is Cinderella. She seems so easy. It takes one to know one. She smiles and puts her hands in her back pocket, Betty Davis style. I always wonder what Betty Davis thought of that. And in comes Romeo. He's moaning, you belong to me, I believe. And someone says, you're in the wrong place, my friend. You'd better leave. And the only sound that's left after the ambulances go is Cinderella sweeping up on Desolation Row. And now the moon is almost hidden. The stars are beginning to hide. The fortune-telling lady has even taken all her things inside, all except for Cain and Abel. And the hunchback of Notre Dame, everybody is making love or else expecting rain. And the good Samaritan, he's dressing. He's getting ready for the show. He's going for the carnival. He's going to the carnival tonight on Desolation Row. So we got a just in three verses, we got a lot going on here. Yeah. We've got Cinderella, we've got Romeo, we've got Cain and Abel, the hunchback of Notre Dame, and Betty Davis. Uh, you know, we got we've got people that were alive at the time of the song's composition and then we've got people from history we've got people from uh you know biblical times and the at least for these opening verses uh there is this sense of at least to me um threat uh and anticipation uh i mean there's all this you know you're in the wrong place my friend you better leave that's ominous desolation Uh, road does not seem to be a happy place to be no, I mean the moon, and, the moon uh, is almost hidden. The stars are hiding. Yeah, fortune telling lady is taking all her things inside. So these people are anticipating something pretty bad coming down. Yeah, yeah. It to me when I was really listening to it over and over, prepping for the podcast, uh, I just thought, you know, it's almost like I, I picture a black and white Twilight Zone episode because yeah. you're trapped in some alternate place you know what is desolation row it kind of strikes me as it's it's the twilight zone it's this place where bad stuff happens you're not quite sure why you're there a lot of people seem like they're being punished uh and there are these sort of themes that run through it or or particularly you know like sometimes it seems like each verse has a certain theme to it you can read a lot into it i do want to make a comment 
uh, if we can go back to the first uh, verse, and, sure. and you open the show reading that, uh, one of the the first like it's it's a f- famous reference. I mean, he, yeah, the very first line is uh, ominous as all get out. Yes, and well, there was a uh, this happened in uh, I uh, June fifteenth, nineteen twenty. Uh, three African American circus workers were lynched in Duluth, and postcards of their bodies hanging from a lamppost were sold. And so he is directly referencing this uh, horrible stain on Duluth history. It's the only recorded lynching in Minnesota. And so uh, to open up with a lynching (laughs) is pretty grim. And then you know, you get the blind commissioner. Well, is that sort of a blind justice reference? You know, I don't know. But then, you know, then there's um, more references to the to the circus theme because he's got his one hand tied to the tightrope walker. Well, what does that mean? And then I like how then you get to the line in the riot squad, they're restless. And now it seems suddenly that seems very contemporary because of course, a lot of civil unrest in the sixties with riots. And then you get the last couple of lines where he says, uh, lady and I look out tonight from desolation row. Well, now that he's placed the narrator of the song right in the story right there on Desolation Row. You know, it's not just someone from the outside kind of telling the story. The person singing the song is right there. And, and yeah, it, it does have overall this ominous feel to it. There's always something dark, something brooding, something coming. Yeah, I mean, anytime you're opening up with that that line about a postcard of a hang, and I had read that it, that apparently this happened only a couple of blocks from where uh, Bob Dylan's father Abraham Zimmerman lived, and he related this story to his son, and I can only imagine, uh, uh, you know, how chilling that would be to hear yeah. as a child. And I thought I'd even read somewhere that that Bob Dylan uh, was old enough to have b- been in places where some of these postcards were still available. Uh, in 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 like little stores here and there, which is just uh, you know the 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 depths of human depravity. I guess yeah. they shouldn't shock me uh, because what I've heard. Th- I mean, you know, what's yeah. there left to be surprised about? But then you hear this stuff and you just shake your head. You just yeah, like what the hell's wrong with people? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. Uh, but yeah, and it's sort of funny. There's a there's a version of this. I'm gonna help. I can't help but jump around a little bit. But there's sure. a uh, there's a live version of this on YouTube. It's from 1965, not too long after the, the album came out. And when he gets to the line about the hand is tied to the tightrope walker, the other in, in, is in his pants, uh, the crowd laughs. Mm-hmm. He gets a big laugh line. And it's sort of funny because they think, I mean, it's a funny line. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you didn't really hear uh, people sing, people talk about that in songs in yeah. 1965. That's kind of, you know, out, outwardly uh, overt reference to masturbation in a, in a pop song in 19, not that this is a pop song, but, you know, in a popular artist yeah. song in 1965. And you hear people laugh and then, you know, you, you kind of like, I think they're probably thinking, oh, this is a funny song. Well, okay, <laughs> get ready, everybody. Yeah. This yeah. is going to not get funny real fast. But I mean, yeah, the, the Riot Squad they're restless. Uh, again, another incredibly ominous line. And, and yeah. you know, uh, it, it 
it, to me, you know, feels very um, like a lot of great Dylan songs contemporary mm-hmm. uh, because, I mean, it all depends on your point of view of how you look at these things. But, you know, we certainly live in an, in, in an era where in an era where there is a lot of uh, pretty overwhelming uh, uh, force used by police yeah. all over this country. And a lot of, you know, we see these things where these cops show up to dispense like a riot and like they're in, you know, they've got tanks. You know, and you're like, yeah. where the hell did, where, 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 you know, when did the cops start? When did this become Mad Max? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and part of that is because what I had read about is that we armored up everybody post 9-11. And then when the, the all that stuff kind of faded a little bit, well, these cops still have all this stuff. These local police departments have all this incredibly high tech uh, tech gear. And it's sort of like, well, we got to use it. You know, we got it. So let's use. And so there's something very, very disturbing about a riot squad being restless. It's yeah. Like, this this is a group that is looking to quell, uh, uh, you know, uh, a revolution maybe, or just just or just to, to quell uh, a group of people. And they're restless. They're looking for something to disperse. And again, it's very, you know, I mean, again, this is the first verse of this song for yeah. Pete's sake. I really, I like in. I like that Betty Davis line in the second verse because I I love when Bob makes uh, cultural references like that. Um, You know, it reminds me of the line in um, in Brownsville Girl where he says there was a movie I seen one time and it starred Gregory (laughs) Peck. You know, and I, I love when he references movies. And well, I'll and see of course, you in anything. So I'll stand in line. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and of course. He is, you know, in this song in, in, in particular is, I mean, the references are just coming at you fast and furious. There's so many references. You, you try to tie them together. It's just, you know, because there's cultural, you know, pop cultural references, uh, classical literature references, historical references. But sometimes you see these things sort of connecting because that second verse mentions Cinderella and then it mentions Romeo but he's told you're in the wrong place, my friend. <laughs> and Cinderella's sweeping up. There's no mention of her getting uh, rescued by Prince Charming. And so you have these two figures that have sort of, uh, you know, a big uh, romantic angles to their persona. But neither Juliet or Prince Charming are there. <laughs> another, yeah, I... It's another part of the desolation of Desolation Row, I think. There's... Yeah, these people have wandered out of their stories, you know. Yeah. And now they are they are in the wrong they are in the wrong place. And regarding the thing with Betty Davis, I sure I've never heard whether Betty Davis uh, had any public reaction to being mentioned here. I, I've heard that she was very uh, complimented by that Kim Carn song, Betty Davis oh, Eyes, mm-hmm. she I, you know outwardly said, "Oh, that's very nice." I hope that Betty Davis took this reference as the compliment that it was meant to be because Betty Davis had for anyone that's ever seen any of her films of her, of her from her heyday, she had that classic pose yeah. where she put her hand on her hip, which is like you saw it in all about Eve and uh, probably a lot of her thirties films where she had a real kind of attitude and she was a real kind of ball buster uh, <laughs> yep. from 1930s films. And that's so to me, anyone who writes, you know, puts her hands in her back pockets, Betty Davis style, that's a compliment to her. And that's that's Bob. We know Bob is a big movie guy. Yeah. And so I, I can only hope that when she heard that, that she took it as the compliment that it was meant to be and not that it was like, oh, this, you know, this hippies making fun of me or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's it, meant totally as a compliment. Oh, I agree. And it's got it's it's such a great 
in a in a song that's so surreal it's a great specific reference you know it's like you get that you know what he means it's crystal clear <laughs> you don't yeah. have to try to figure something out it's like yeah he's just used this tiny detail to just really hit the the nail on the head for a certain tone yeah um in the third verse he said the everyone is making love or else expecting rain i mean obviously expecting rain has gone on to become a phrase in the dylan culture there's the website expecting rain.com yep. uh but i just i love that turn of phrase everybody is making love or else expecting rain so it's either incredibly good or kind of incredibly <laughs> bad you know everything yeah things, things, things are going really well for some people and other people not so much there's, there's yeah. no there's no gray here it's either very bad or very good the the note that i made to myself on the third verse was it almost sounds like a nice place this time <laughs> even with a storm coming you know there's a carnival carnivals can be fun but then of course carnivals often have a spooky yep <laughs> tone oh, yeah. as well so yeah there's the closest it gets to being sounding good it's still you know there's a storm coming and again it's amazing to think about that this song is we're three verses in and he's still kind of stage uh, stage setting <laughs> when you think about there are yeah. other songs that tell entire you know i mean uh, all the songs in uh uh, John Wesley Harding are three verses. He tells entire songs, you know, and yet here he's taking his time. He sort of is drawing you out. And uh, so he says, now Ophelia, she's neath the window. For her, I feel so afraid on her 22nd birthday. She already is an old maid. To her, death is quite romantic. She wears an iron vest. Her profession's her religion. Her sin is her lifelessness. And though her eyes are fixed upon Noah's great rainbow, she spends her time peeking into Desolation Row. So what is your thought about this? This verse is always, to me, uh, hard to wrap my head around. I'm not sure who, I mean, Ophelia is from Hamlet. I assume that that's maybe what he's referring to. Not necessarily. Uh, but I mean, the I, I mean, Noah is Noah, I would assume. great. The great rainbow is the, yeah. uh, the rainbow that comes after the great flood. Uh, but there's something... Uh, Ophelia here sounds a little bit like uh, Miss Lonely from like a Rolling Stone or Queen Jane where she she spends her time peeking into Desolation Row like she's she's able to kind of like almost be like a dilettante you know she's not yeah. really of Desolation Row she's just kind of peeking in like oh look at all that horrible stuff going on while well, I'm safe from my you know vantage point that's at least how I take what what's going on with Ophelia oh well yeah that sounds that sounds good to me, and but I, but, but I also think that, yeah, using the name Ophelia, uh, you can't use that name, or certainly Dylan isn't going to use that name without knowing what it's going to bring in from Hamlet. Right. And so, again, we come back to, you know, where we, we've mentioned in, previously that there's these sort of romantic De desolation on the row and so here of course in hamlet ophelia is pursuing hamlet we all know it doesn't turn out well <laughs> she ends up dead you know and 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 so when i read lines like to her death is quite romantic it it really has a it's got an added depth to it because of what's going on with that character in hamlet you know she's kind of goes kind of mad the the hamlet character and you know she was looking for something good she was hoping that she was going to get married to hamlet but you know it all goes 
wrong and <laughs> and she ends up drowning and you have these references you know you have like she's fixed upon Noah's great rainbow like you said you know so she's looking for something after the flood but you know she ends up drowning so there seems to be a connection there that Bob is <laughs> playing off water imagery and stuff but you also don't you know you, you don't really know and uh, and that's what certainly makes songs like this all the more fun to discuss because there's just so much going on. I mean, when she she wears an iron vest, you know, how do you take that? You know, it's like and that that line's always just been sort of like, okay, I mean, she she wants to be protected. Yeah, uh, I guess. Uh, but but she, yeah, that one is always like, oh, OK, I'm not I've never really been able to get my get a handle on that. <laughs> Um, so uh, he continued. We get even uh, another incredibly bizarre image: Einstein disguised <laughs> as Robin Hood, with his memories in a trunk, passed this way an hour ago with his friend, a jealous monk. He looks so immaculate, immaculately frightful. That's tough to say, by the way. Bob <laughs> sings that perfectly. That's a tough <laughs> word to say, immaculately. Uh, and he bummed a cigarette. Then he went off sniffing drain pipes. And reciting the alphabet. Now you would think not to look at him, but he was famous long ago for playing the electric violin on Desolation Row. There's something so uh, sordid about sniffing drain pipes. It's, um, <laughs> and that's one that that uh, line. The uh, he went out sniffing drain pipes and reciting the alphabet. If you listen to the live version that's on live 1962 to 1966, I think you can hear laughter in the audience at mm -hmm. that line because it's so bizarre um and you know this and the and the sixth verse just really get out there and to me they they kind of remind me of something like 115th dream it just seems like well this yeah. is just nonsense that rhymes um but it's but it stays you know the 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 tone for the most part stays uh dark you know, so it matches the the overall feeling of the song, but they really do seem kind of disconnected in some ways from the rest of it. And in fact, the version of the song that I fell in love with, the unplugged version, leaves out both this verse and the next verse. Right. It's a lot short. That version is a lot short. So it's a few minutes shorter. And I think that without those two verses. And also the uh, next to the last verse, he also leaves out. I think those are the three verses that sort of go the, you know, that that are the strangest in in I mean in a in a song full of strange verses. <laughs> hmm. And and f for me, leaving out those three kind of allows you to almost have an illusion that this is like a a, a coherent logical storyline that progresses from beginning to end. <laughs> <laughs> mm. But, you know, with them in there, it uh, really emphasizes how surreal this song is, you know, just what is going on with these people on Desolation Row. Yeah, because the 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 eye, you know, the the guy who is actually the narrator, we've lost him. He's yeah. gone now. Yeah. Uh, he, he disappeared a couple of verses ago. And now we're just, uh, you know, we're, we're it. it 
when when I think of this uh, song and I conjure it in my head, I think about what it's like to walk down a city street uh, mm-hmm. when it's super crowded. Yeah, you know, and you're just seeing this panoply of of humanity coming in, not more than humanity, some animals as well, you know, birds or whatever, seeing dogs or whatever, seeing lots of stuff, and you're you're trying to kind of like take it all in, sort of, but it does become overwhelming. I don't know if if you uh, experience this, Scott, but like I do when I've been to major cities. Uh, after a little while, like, and I, after walking several blocks where I'm just surrounded by people, I kind of like, I, I, okay, I got to just walk, stand (laughs) off to the side here for a moment. This is all just too, just just sensory overload here. Yeah. And, and despite the, 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 the vocal performance, which is very serious, um, there's a lot of funny lines. I mean, Einstein just disguised as Robin Hood is a funny image. Yeah. You see it in your head. And you think of that old dumpy man with the shock of white hair wearing tights. <laughs> and it's a funny image. And, you know, you're just kind of like, okay. And yet yet from the way Bob sings it, it sounds deadly serious. There is no like – you mentioned uh, 115th Dream. He's – you know, I mean, aside from that song opens with laughter yeah. uh, because, of the, because of the flub take. You can hear it in Bob's voice that, that he's just having a, a laugh. He's yeah. taking the piss out of – uh, out of all the seriousness at this point, but this the, he sounds very, very serious here. And yet again, the images are, uh, if not uh, directly humorous, uh, make you uncomfortable. Like you said, the sniffing drain pipes is just kind of like that. Sounds like someone just really laid low. That they're kind yeah. of like, what is that? I mean, I mean, obviously, it could be a metaphor for something, but it just sounds sordid and and uh, you know, real dissolute that someone has been reduced to doing this. Um, so now we're going even further with these bizarre characters. <laughs> Dr. Filth, he keeps his world inside of a leather cup, but all his sexless patients, they're all trying to blow it up. Now his nurse, his nurse some local loser, I love the way he just, some, I, I love kind of the way Bob just sort of throws away that line, some yeah. local loser. She's in charge of the cyanide hole. She also keeps the cards that read, have mercy on his soul. They all play on the penny whistles. You can hear them blow if you lean your head out far enough from Desolation Row. And that's a part where I always forget if you can – they all play on the penny whistles. You can hear them blow is, uh, you know, you can be um, – you can kind of figure out what's going on. Uh, kind of, you know, you, you you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. If you pay enough attention, mm-hmm. uh, you lean your head out far enough. You know, you're maybe taking a risk, but you, you know, maybe from the safety of your your vehicle, uh, you're kind of driving by this neighborhood and you're not really worrying about it. But if you lean your head out far enough, you can kind of tell what's going on. And that's that comes with a certain amount of risk. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's there's there's obviously there seems to be a lot of death on the roll. I mean, what is a cyanide yeah. hole? You know, that is. Yeah. Oh, my God. Talk yeah. about yeah. ominous. And then they're saying have mercy on his soul. So it just seems like a, a, a deadly place to be. And one thing that is interesting is. You know, we we lost to the narrator way at the yeah, beginning. I don't know what happened to him? Yeah, he's gone. Way at the beginning, we had the thing where he was on Desolation Row, but then as you go through the song, the way those the last line of each verse ends with Desolation Row. Sometimes, like here, it says, "If you lean your head out far enough from Desolation Row," mm. and it's like, okay, so is this person? So this person seems to be on Desolation Row, but you can sort of lean out of it. You can get a hint of something on the outside or, you know, it kind of it, it's the the placement 
of each verse can be kind of murky. You know, it's like, well, where yeah. is Desolation Row a specific Desolation Row a specific physical place that you're on and you can leave it and come back. You can see the outside or you can be on the outside looking in. It it seems to, in a dreamlike way, it seems to morph from verse to verse where you are, what you can be, how you can get there, or, you know, can you get out? And, you know, some of that stuff we'll get to in the later verses, but that's another thing that's, that's interesting about the song. It reminds me a little bit of the the visual approach taken in the video for Series of Dreams, uh, where you know we have this footage of of different people walking <clears> down the street, but then they've computer altered it where the backgrounds are moving, the sky is moving, there the the whole you know things are constantly shifting. Yeah, uh, you, even on the ground that you're walking on, the pavement is moving and whatever. And and yeah, I didn't really think about that, but you're right. It's lean your head out from Desolation Row. And by the way, I love how Bob shifts how he intones the final rhyme in every verse. Because sometimes mm-hmm. he sings Desolation Row kind of softly. You know, you lean your head you lean your head out far enough from Desolation Row. And then there's other times where he's desolation. <laughs> like you know and he's boom, yeah. boom, 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 boom. And I, I don't I I would love to know in his head why he was deciding to do that. Why some verses he felt maybe needed the punch and others are a little more mellow, you know, it's just like, okay, it's a little easier. And then other ones, he's really kind of kicking in the face with the desolate, the hard sound of, uh, of the, the, the syllables. Yeah. Um, so across the street, they've nailed the curtains. They're getting ready for the feast, the Phantom of the Opera and a per- a perfect image of a priest. They're spoon feeding Casanova to get him to feel more assured. Then they'll kill him with self-confidence after poisoning him with words and the phantom shouting to skinny girls, get out of here if you don't know. Casanova is just being punished for going to Desolation Row. And, um, of course, in the earlier version, there are some slight uh, lyrical changes. Yeah. Uh, most of the ones, I think, for this final version are uh, superior. Um, the the original line, instead of uh, spoon-feeding Casanova to get him to feel more assured, these women are feeding him the boiled guts of birds, uh, which is just a disgusting line. <laughs> And it, you know, it, to me, it's so grotesque. It sort of takes me out of the song a little bit. So I'm kind of glad that he decided to pull that, and it made it a little more. Mm-hmm. It's a little softer, but still, there these 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 people are uh, buttering up Casanova. Uh, you know, they're poisoning him with his words. They're they're, you know, this this guy, the Casanova is. Everyone knows who what a Casanova is. This is maybe Casanova has maybe wandered on a desolation row and thinks that his charm is going to get him somewhere, uh, not realizing that uh, he's sort of being fattened up like a Christmas goose. Yeah, well, and this is another, you know, we come back to these uh, romantic illusions. We have the Phantom of the Opera, who is famous for having an unrequited love. And then you have Casanova, who's famous for having all the love he wants. (laughs) And... Mm -hmm. uh, but you know that it's it's not going to go well for either of them here on Desolation Row. Um, and in fact, that first, that, that line, they're spoon-feeding Casanova to get him to feel more assured, is kind of odd because, of course, Casanova is not known for, you know... <laughs> Not for for lacking self confidence, but here mm-hmm. it seems that they're trying to get him to feel more assured. Well, this is a guy who's very self assured, but uh, yeah. Th- then, as you said, it seems like they're turning that around on him when they get to uh, kill him with self confidence. That he's <laughs> you know paying the price for his uh, his approach to life. I don't know, uh, but 
like I said earlier, it's interesting how so many of the characters that he brings in uh, are characters that have some sort of romantic angle to them, whether it's um, a positive or a negative. Uh, it definitely seems to be negative here on the roll. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all these all these people are going are going to get it uh, one way or the <laughs> yeah. other. They're going to get it, uh, and they, they you know they don't know. And and maybe again, maybe all these people that are visiting Desolation Row. Are, are they're all kind of again? I, they use the same word again, dilettantes. Like these are people that are just kind of slumming it a little bit, mm-hmm. and they don't realize that Desolation Row is going to eat them up and uh, chew them up and spit them out. Uh, so the next verse is probably the most famous line from the song. Now uh, at midnight, all the agents and the superhuman crew come out and round up everyone that knows more than they do. Then they bring them to the factory where the heart attack machine is strapped across their shoulders. And then the kerosene is brought down from the castles by insurance men who go check to see that nobody is escaping to desolation row. And I will say, I remember um, I quote unquote discovered Bob Dylan in 1989, which sounds absurd, of course, but that's when I discovered him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, and then I, you know, around that time I was going back and rereading Watchmen and Alan Moore uses that line, Midnight, All the Agents and the Superhuman Crew. And I was like, wow, you can quote Bob Dylan in a comic book? Pretty cool, you know? And now that song, you know, this song has been covered by My Chemical Romance and it, for the uh, Watchmen soundtrack. Yep. And so I would say it is it is the most famous line uh, from this song of the superhuman, because people just hear superhuman. And again, uh, Bob means it here. And it's kind of an ominous, once again, kind of at midnight. I mean, why are the agents coming out at midnight? That seems kind of dark. Why are they yeah. coming out in the middle of the night? And then wherever this cyanide hole is, it does sound like the same place where you would get a heart attack machine strapped <laughs> yeah. to you. I mean, good Lord, what kind of Hieronymus Bosch painting are we living in here? Yeah, and this is one of those things where it's you, know, you try to figure out what is he saying. And, and all the agents, the agents measure in the first line – are they insurance agents? Is that does it mm-hmm. go along with the insurance men that we get at the end of the verse, or is it something else? Are they secret agents that are with this superhuman crew? There's just so many ways to try to interpret this, and and then the, this, but it's then the insurance men seem to be doing the burning with the kerosene. Yeah. And to me, it's sort of like echoes of, um, you know, like in Fahrenheit 451, the firemen were the ones who set the fire. (laughs) (laughs) And and here, you know, insurance men, if you get a, you know, there's different ways to interpret what he's meaning by insurance here. But if you think of, you know, literal insurance, then it seems like, well, they're not supposed to be the people doing the destroying. They're supposed to be the ones helping you afterward. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that's, that I find really interesting about the uh, the Desolation Row reference at the end of this verse is the original lyrics seem are given as um, check to see that nobody is escaping to desolation row yes <laughs> and when you, know, you hear that and you say well well that's weird it seems like they'd be it's like people should be escaping from desolation row and so the fact that they're trying to keep people escape from escaping to it is interesting and confusing and in unplugged that live version he drops the word to 
So what he says in the unplugged version is check to see that nobody is escaping desolation row. Which, of course, completely changes the meaning of it. <laughs> yeah. So he turns it. I mean, obviously, Bob is famous for fiddling with lyrics, oh, yeah. changing them all the time. And there, by dropping out one word, it's 180 degrees. It's it's the opposite meaning. So, Bob, please tell me what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I would. I, I've said this on other episodes, man. It would be fascinating just to talk to him about his thought processes about editing these songs in concert, yeah. you know, I mean, cause I mean, clearly, um, I mean, if, if you want to be less than charitable, you could say, well, he's, he's singing a shorter version of desolation row because he's 78 years old <laughs> and the damn thing is a word salad and he just can't remember it all. But I don't think that's the case. I mean, by the fact that he is still rewriting songs, uh, seems to suggest that his memory is just fine. Um, and so I get the sense that if there are specific verses taken from Desolation Row, that's on purpose. You know, yeah. he sat down and looked through the song and went, nope, that's coming out, that's coming out, that's coming out, as opposed to it being more indiscriminate. So obviously yeah. there's some meaning there that he's like, nah, we don't need the Einstein as Robin Hood line like, you know, verse. We can take that one out. So, right? I would love to, you know, that would be fascinating just as a songwriter. Yeah. You know, like just to like, come on, American Songwriter Magazine, get on that. Like, <laughs> ask him about that stuff. Um, so he says, uh, praise be to Nero's Neptune. I have no idea what that means. The Titanic sails at dawn and everybody's shouting, which side are you on? And Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot fighting in the captain's tower while Calypso singers laugh at them and fishermen hold flowers between the windows of the sea where lovely mermaids flow and nobody has to think too much about Desolation Row. And I love this verse because obviously you've got the mention of the Titanic and that immediately sets the tone of everything's about to go horribly bad. And yeah. people are asking you, what side are you on? And it's like, what goddamn difference does it make? We're all about to die. You know, I mean, come on. You know, what is that? And you've got Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, presumably pretty smart people. They're wasting their time fighting. And on, you've got the Calypso singers laughing at them, presumably for fighting. But they're, they're, you know, they're laughing. They're going to die, too, these Calypso singers, because they're all presumably on the Titanic as well. Yeah, it is a strange verse, and it just seems like uh, Bob was trying to throw in every water illusion that he could think of. Uh, and yeah, it, I, it's it, I'm kind of at a loss on that one. You know, I find myself getting sidetracked to wondering, well, what were Pound and Elliot fighting about? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and and uh... maybe are those the sides we're picking? Are we picking a side between Pound and Elliot, or? Are we picking which side of the Titanic we're on? You know, it's also <laughs> nebulous. Uh, but, oh, it's just... Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just like, ah, okay, I all right. And, and by the way, T.S. Eliot uh, had just died. He died in January of 1965. So he was, you know, he was... I mean, he was he was at the end of his life, obviously, at that point. But he was it wasn't like he was this ancient figure from history. He had just, mm -hmm. I mean, that would have been amazing if he had lived long enough to hear that about. <laughs> hey, man, you got mentioned on this song. And I wonder what that would have been like. <laughs> so then we have uh, this extended, amazing harmonica break. And uh, that is not in the uh, original take of the song. And that, that to me is re the reason why I think that this version, the one that's on the record, is to me by far my favorite version because it's you've got this incredible soaring uh harmonica and it's just wailing out and and you know 
I've, I, I'm not a musician. I can't, I don't know. I don't know how to play any instruments, but like if I'm Charlie McCoy, I mean, he's a professional, Mm -hmm. but man, if I'm Charlie McCoy and I'm 10 minutes into this 11 minute song, (laughs) I'm just praying to God, I don't screw something up because you know, it's like, we're really getting this. And like, you know, you got to wonder like, I mean, did Charlie McCoy see the lyric sheet? Did he have any idea how long he was going to have to keep playing? Cause it feels like as Bob is doing that harmonica break, that da, 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 as he's going, you can hear McCoy kind of like gear up you know they're kind of Mm -hmm. building and building and building to this thing so maybe he knew that they were about to head into the final verse i don't know it feels like it but you you know i I, bob was never apparently very communicative with his musicians (laughs) about that stuff so i don't know idea but i mean i just i hear that and i'm like god i i just you know i and of course by worrying about it that's probably ensuring that you're going to screw up because then you're not you know you're getting in your own way at that point but man, I love that. I love the harmonica break in the in the pen before the uh, final verse. Yeah. So and then he comes back and he says yes, and now we're back to I. Yeah. Uh, we've got somebody. The guy where our narrator is back. Yes, I received your letter yesterday about the time the doorknob broke when you asked me how I was doing. Was that some kind of joke? All these people that you mentioned. Yes, I know them. They're quite lame. I had to rearrange their faces. And give them all another name. Right now, I can't read too good. Don't me send. Don't send me no more letters. No, not unless you mail them from Desolation Row. And it's funny uh, you mentioned Twilight Zone at the top of this mm-hmm. episode, and the line about I had to rearrange their faces reminds <laughs> me of that one episode from uh, the Twilight Zone where there's a rich, there's this rich old man, and all of his um, he's dying, and all of his relatives are there to basically just get his money. And his, I don't know if you've ever seen this one. I think it's called, uh, shoot, I can't remember the name of it. It's not Eye of the Beholder. That's a different one. But um, he gives all of his terrible relatives masks to wear uh, as a condition of them inheriting uh, his money. And they all put these, you know, grotesques grotesque masks on mm-hmm. and then he dies and spoiler alert everybody they take the masks off and they see their faces have been permanently <laughs> uh, morphed into this rictus of horror and so they're going to get the money but now they got to live with these yeah. horribly twisted faces and that's what i think about when he sings about it. yeah i had to rearrange their faces and give them all another name this is this person is uh uh, is is transforming the people around them, and again, and I love the way Bob's sneering tone of was that some kind of joke? Yeah. I love the way he sings that because I feel like I've experienced that from certain people in my life. Yeah, well, it it reminds me of you know now that we're back to the first person, and uh, you know he so he's received a letter. Uh, one would imagine it's from Lady. From the original, maybe. you know, yeah, maybe the same, you know, lady that he mentions in the first verse. And uh, but he apparently has escaped Desolation Row because or or maybe he hasn't, depending on <laughs> depending on how you interpret what's meant by the last line where he says, not unless right. you mail them from Desolation Row. What does that mean that he's still on Desolation Row and he wants her to be on Desolation Row with him? Or does it mean you know, but then why would she have to mail something to him? So then it seems like, right. you know, so is he on Desolation? Is he gone from Desolation Row? She's someplace else, <laughs> but he wants her back on Desolation Row. And it it, it kind of reminded me of a lot of his sort of, um, uh, you know, his his 
bad breakup kind of songs, you know, because there does seem to be kind of a flash forward there. Yes, I received your letter yesterday. It seems like yeah. such a break from the previous several verses that suddenly, okay, now we're sometime in the future. This time has passed. Things have changed. He's rearranged faces, given the mother names. It, it, um, it put me in mind when I was listening to it last uh, yesterday, I was listening to it over and over. It put me in mind of the last verse of Tangled Up in Blue, when time has passed and he's talking about the people he and the woman knew and how they might have different occupations now. Right, you right. know, and so you get this sense of time passing and something has transpired between him and the or you know, between the narrator of the song and the woman. And you know, it it clearly wasn't a a a, a good breakup, if you will. No. And uh, but then, you know, when he says about the time that the doorknob broke. <laughs> so you try to imagine that literal like some story, some, you know, crazy hijinks that happened between them when times were happier and a doorknob broke. But then he says, when you asked how I was doing, was that some kind of joke? So he goes from this sort of jokey line that sounds like it would be a funny memory but then it's the anger's there. When you asked how I was doing, was that some kind of joke? You know, well, I, I, I always took the doorknob broke line as this: the guy, the the I in this song mm-hmm. is kind of living in a in a real shitty place now. Mm-hmm. He's living in some very broken down hovel. And he's broken up, maybe again, maybe from lady, but he's living in a really sordid place. The doorknob is broke. I mean, the, the most the most basic thing in your home is a doorknob, and even the doorknob is broken. Yeah, yeah. And so he's broken up with her, and she's asking, "How are you doing?" And it's sort of like, "Well, you mailed it. You mailed this letter to me, so you know where I'm living, and you know that where I'm living is probably a shithole. <laughs> so why are you asking me how I'm doing? Is that some kind of joke? <laughs> like that kind of like? It's like he's he's sort of saying you're mocking." me by yeah. asking how I'm doing. The, 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 the friggin' doorknobs don't even work around. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that is that is great. Well, and it's <laughs> and it's funny because you know such a different interpretation of the scene than what I had. Right. And it shows you how malleable this language is. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and then again, the right now I can't read too good, uh, which again suggests someone in a in a very dissolute place. Yeah. Uh, I I mean I even like the way he reads. I can't read too good, which kind of is a sort of. Uh, you know, not the most literate way of putting yeah. it, too. I can't read too good. You know, he sounds sounds like uh, Tarzan. I can't yeah. read too good. Uh, it's from Joe Palooka from uh, again, a, a film noir. Don't send me no more letters, no. And then again, not unless you mail them from. And then he had punctures it with another harmonica verse, and it fades out, and, you know, boom, we are done. And it is like, there you go, everybody. Uh, you know, this is uh, enjoy your trip on Highway 61. Uh, <laughs> you're just like, holy. And it is, I mean, Bob has, uh, through his career, uh, done this, where he has ended an album of electric rock songs with an acoustic finale, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a Wedding Song on Planet Waves or Dark Eyes on Empire Burlesque, or if you even want to say maybe Sugar Baby on, on Love and Theft. He does this a lot. 
And to me, this is just the ultimate version of it, uh, of just these powerful eight songs and then then to, to end it all with this. And it's sort of funny. Uh, I read in one of the Clinton Halen books where there was an original, apparently initial pass at sequencing this record back when Positively Fourth Street was considered maybe to still be on it or can you please crawl out your window. And at some point, Desolation Row was like track seven of ten. Huh. And, and it was followed by like Queen Jane approximately and From a Buick Six. Which is just inconceivable. I mean, how, how could how could you how could you keep playing songs after this? You know, after yeah. eleven and a half minutes of this, we're done. This is it. The, the album's over. I mean, we're <laughs> going to go to from a Bu- I mean, I love from a Buick Six, but we're going to go play that after this. Like that's crazy. <laughs> but that said, of course, Bob has been playing this in concert, and he doesn't save it for the end. He puts this in the middle. I think you in, at the uh, MTV Unplugged show, he. It's it's like song four or something of that yeah. concert. So it's certainly not something that he thinks of as like the big closer. He's willing to 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 put it in the middle. And I'm just going through my records here. I've heard him do it three times myself live, and I'm looking at them all, and they're all like song four, song five. So it's it's you know even though it's 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 one of the great to me album closers of all time. He doesn't regard it that way in concert. He he is pretty happy to put it in the middle of the set list. Yeah, it's um. I have to look up and see where he put it when uh, I saw him. Let's see. Oh, oh my gosh. When I saw him uh, do it live, it was the third song. <laughs> I mean, you never know. Everybody's when he... just sitting down. They got their beer. You know, here you go, everybody. Cyanide hole. Well, this okay. is. All right. So I saw him. This was uh, July 14th, 2000 is when I saw him. And, uh, First song was acoustic Duncan and Brady. Oh, I love the oh man, I love all those folk covers he was doing and back so, then to open the yeah, song, open but, the concerts. So the but but you know the, the, most of the audience they're going what you know because here's this song <laughs> Duncan and Brady no one's really heard of it right song number two the times they are a changing all right big hit so sure. it's like okay here we go and then wham desolation roll. <laughs> And then he followed it up with all it's all over now, baby blue. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He's not he's not interested in, in the holding your hand, certainly. Uh yeah. This song this song has been played five hundred and eighty one times, which is actually a lot more than I thought it would have been. Uh it, it, yeah. considering what a huge song this is. And I've uh, only seen him do it once in twenty five shows. Well, it's it's sort of funny. I'm looking through the years here, and he played it pretty much. He did it, of course, at the acoustic half of the shows he did with the band. And uh, those versions are actually quite good. I like the ones by himself. It actually works pretty well. And then he stopped doing it with the uh, the Royal Albert Hall show. And he didn't do it again until 1974. He only did it one time uh, in February with the band during that tour. And then not again for another 10 years where he broke it out in Rome, Italy, and then he did it a couple times in 87 and 90, and then pretty much starting around the mid-90s, it's been not a regular part of the set list, but you know, it's been played multiple times every, pretty much every year from around 97, 98 up until now, and it was last played in 2018. So this is something that he is returning to uh, fairly frequently, yeah. uh, despite the fact that it has to be an amazing uh, just act of uh, of memory just to have all this in your head. I mean, because as, we, as we've talked about, it doesn't have 
that much of a narrative structure. It's a, yeah. Tangled Up in Blue, kind of easy to remember because you remember where the story is, is at yeah. any given point. You're like, oh, I'm at the stripper now. Okay, now I'm at this. But Desolation Row, you know, what, wait a minute, which verse is the part where Robin Hood shows up? You know, you think, oh, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be impossible to remember, but he seems to be uh, enjoying doing it. And he, yeah, that unplugged version, he dropped three verses, and so that made it, it it's still eight and a half minutes long. Yeah, you know, oh. so it's still a big chunk of song. And then, you know, I have to give a shout out to uh, my Chemical Romance. You mentioned them earlier. So they do the first two verses. They skip to the eighth verse. Then they just do a few lines from the last verse. And so they make it into a three-minute punk song mm. <laughs> out of that 11-and-a-half-minute acoustic folk song. I love their cover. Um I was listening to that. Well, I made a little a playlist in uh, in iTunes yesterday when I was working on some notes for today because I put in all the versions uh, that I have on, uh, you know, the uh, properly released versions. So I had Highway right. 61 Revisited. Then there's the alternate take on the uh, bootleg series number seven, the No Direction Home one. Then he's got the uh, two takes two alternate takes from the bootleg number 12. And that's the, uh, there's an incomplete take with a piano and then another take that's pretty close to the, uh, that final take. And then there was a version on, uh, from 1966 in Sydney on live 62 to 66. And then there's a take from the next month, in, uh, still in 1966 at the Albert hall. That's on the bootleg number four. Right. And then we have the, uh, MTV unplugged version. And then I have the, my chemical romance. <laughs> so I just put that in a playlist. So I could just have that playing over and over and over <laughs> as yes, I was yeah. writing up my notes. And, uh, I, I would have really liked to have heard the, I wish he had done the full song in the piano version. Uh, I don't think it necessarily worked that well with the piano, but it would have been li- nice to hear the whole thing. Uh, yeah, it would have. I always, yeah, it would have been cool. And what do you think of the the flamenco guitar? I mean, the, the what do you think of that as the as the decoration? The, it gives this really kind of ugly song uh, in terms of the the imagery. Obviously, a, a real gentle beauty and I, I have to think that that he was going for that he was i mean he could have made this sound harsh yeah uh, but he's not he's making it sound very pretty and that flamenco played by charlie mccoy is is really quite beautiful and yet you know you're, you're being shown this parade of horrors but yet <laughs> yeah. it, yet it all sounds so very pretty yeah i don't know i i have mixed feelings because like i said for whatever reason I don't know, was it the flamenco guitar? Was it something else? Was it just how different it was from the rest of the album? But I literally had no memory of this from the, you know, probably hundreds of times that I listened to the album (laughs) throughout (laughs) the uh, 70s and 80s. It just didn't stick with me at all. And now I I enjoy it when I go back and listen to it now. But uh, strangely for me, when I think of the song, it's always going to be the unplugged version. What is it about the unplugged version? I mean, I like that version, but what is there something about that one that you feel like it? Uh, you're able to sort of distill why, why that one works for you the best? Um, well, for one thing, I think that because of the, the, the verses that he chose to leave out, I think it does have as much of a coherent feel that it than than it can that it can have uh, for a song that is so 
surreal and, you know, if you're trying to find a story in it, you're not going to find a story the way that you are in some of his other story songs that are much more literally coherent stories that you could just imagine, you know, being a short story or a film or something, because there's a sort of a real world feel to them. Um, in this one, obviously, you don't seem like you're in the real world. It, you seem more like the Twilight Zone. But by turning it into an eight and a half minute song without those few verses that are the most out there, maybe it's just a little bit more accessible. Um, maybe it was the you know, it probably had something to do with the band, the way, you know, the the sound, you know, it's performed a little bit faster. Maybe it's a, just a little bit easier to sing along to. I don't know. But uh, it just really grabbed me in that. I really, I do like that version. I do like it a lot. I like I like that acoustic strumming through the whole thing. He's kind of yeah. got like that sort of backbeat behind it. The dun, 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 just kind of, go, I'm massacring it. But it's it's actually very good. I do like that version uh, quite a bit. It's a uh, it's, driving. Uh, yeah, yeah, driving. That's a good term. And for it, yeah. and so maybe maybe it just worked for me that the that the tone of the music fits the song a little bit more. Where, like you mentioned, he's doing this weird thing in the original where he's making it sound really pretty across this bleak. <laughs> and sometimes that's exactly the kind of thing I love when when something has those two different layers to the tones mm -hmm. but you know maybe that's part of why it didn't quite work for me or maybe it was just the uh switch to the acoustic after the rest of the album i don't know hmm. but uh the um the one other uh, little piece of uh, detail i wanted to mention is there is a book uh that you can buy called the superhuman crew uh which is a um it's a it's a i don't i don't want to say it's a picture book cuz that makes it sound like it's for children yeah. uh but it is a basically it is takes the lyrics of this song and it pastes them over uh pieces of a painting uh, Christ's entry into Brussels painted by James Ensor uh which he painted in 1889 so it takes pieces of this painting and and you can kind of imagine what kind of painting would go along with uh <laughs> desolation row uh it's this huge panoramic painting full of all these different people and so it's it's the kind of painting that you can look at little pieces of and um you know while you're kind of not looking at the rest of it there's a lot to look at and it overlays the the lyrics to this you know over like the course of like uh, 20 pages it does all these close-ups and i was looking and i saw that the that painting uh, is in the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So uh, for any of you out there in Los Angeles, if you ever want to replicate this, you could just get your iPhone and go see this painting uh, <laughs> and just listen to the song yeah. while you're looking at the painting and replicate it. You don't have to buy the book. You can just do it for yourself at the museum. So <laughs> just as a little public service <laughs> message for everybody. I mean, how many, I mean, God, how many songs can you imagine doing such a thing with, you know, that, 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 that's, could could withstand such scrutiny uh, like that to be able to pair it up like that. It's it's, it's said it's it, I can only imagine what you know Bob Johnson and the other musicians must have felt like when he's walking in with these lyrics on a sheet. You know when you're like, what the hell is this? You know, I mean, what what you know? All right, we're gonna bang through this. We're gonna do all eleven minutes of this, and it's just it's a bravura performance. Um, it it's I can't imagine Highway sixty one ending any other way than with this song. I mean, it just it it brings everything to this crashing conclusion 
Uh, and it really is just like a perfect album closer. And it, it is, you know, um, it's a deep cut in that the average person hasn't heard of it. You know, it's not like a Rolling Stone. It's not yeah. Times Era changing. But it is one of the uh, edifices on which his legend is based. Is, yeah. is you know, is he, he doesn't just have the hits. He's got these other songs like Visions of Johanna and uh, Blind Willie McTell and Desolation Row that most people haven't heard of, but are stone-cold masterpieces. And this yeah. is really one of them. And so... Scott, you know, I again, I admired the chutzpah uh, for you to, to to try and shoot for this one, but I'm glad you did because I'm I'm glad that we finally had a I've only a chance to cover this because it's it's yeah it's an amazing song. It is. It's it's um, like a lot of his great songs. It's uh, more about um, evoking atmosphere and and yes. and, and emotions than than giving you a, a, a specific real world story. And it's just you know this collage of cultural illusions that it makes it so easy to interpret in many many ways so anyone who listens to it is going to bring a lot of their own meaning to it and uh, you know that's what what great art does yeah that absolutely true and he said to me it, it is in its own way as relevant today as it was when he wrote it, which is amazing when you think that the song is, uh, what, 54 years old, yeah. 55 years old at this point. Uh, I will say uh, from my, you know, my personal experience, I I received a letter from someone uh, not that long ago who I didn't want to hear from. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I mean, the line I was like. You know, yes, I received your yesterday. Was that some kind of joke? I was like, oh man, I'm living this, I'm living desolation right right now. This is kind of amazing. So, uh, well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on. This was uh, an extraordinarily fun conversation. I really appreciate you reaching out to me. I appreciate it again, the guts it took to, to ask for Desolation Row. I thought it was great. So, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? They can find my uh, website at scott-pearson.com, and that covers my various writing and editing adventures. They can also find me at generationsgeek.com. Generations Geek is the podcast I do with my daughter. We are both super geeks, and we (laughs) talk about whatever sort of geeky things we want to talk about, and we also have... uh, author guests and uh, we even had uh, an astronaut on as a guest a couple of times uh, fantastic yeah and that's then very cool and i'm on social media i'm on the twitter and that sort of thing uh, i'm s michael pearson on twitter because scott pearson is a very 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 common name so i had to find some way to get a, a, a more unique name to get on Twitter. Oh, yeah. yeah. You tr- try talking, try, try finding a Twitter handle for Rob Kelly. Just try that, man. You know? <laughs> well, there's a, uh, there's a Canadian hockey player named uh, Scott Pearson. And so if you just start hitting up Scott Pearson, you're going to get all sorts of hits before you get to me. You have to add in something like Kiki or Star Trek or something. And then, then you'll find me online. There's this toothless hockey guy who's like, why does everybody keep thinking I like Bob Dylan? I don't, what's, I don't know what that's about. I don't understand it. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. This was just Thanks an extraordinarily fun conversation. Well, thank you. Of course, everybody, if you want to support uh, the Fire and Water Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash FW Podcast. And for an uh, ongoing donation, you can receive different rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a favorite Fire and Water Network show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward and another uh, 
uh, supporter who chooses to remain masked and anonymous for their support <laughs> of Pod Dylan. And of course, we're always talking uh, Bob D- Dylan over on Twitter, which is at Pod underscore Dylan. And by the way, I should mention uh, the show is now on uh, Spotify as well. You can listen to the show. All of my podcasts for the Fine Order Network are now on Spotify. And uh, I'll say I'm really happy with the numbers. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people are listening to Pod Dylan on Spotify. So I'm very, very I'm, I am sure I am picking up some of the oh, the uh, the spillover from people searching for Bob Dylan music <laughs> on Spotify. Then they hear the podcast. But no, so we're on, we're on Spotify now too, and of course we're on Stitcher. And you can always find back episodes of the show on the website FireAndWaterPodcast.com. So thank you everybody for listening. Uh, have a uh, said this is the first show of 2020. I'm really excited. We have a, a lot more fun songs to talk about in the upcoming year, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it all. So thanks everybody for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Shine a room.